when Cain and Abel made that offering, there was that impulse to give to the divine being, to the God of gods. As we track through last week, there's this mounting, heaping up of giving over to God as prescribed and detailed in Exodus, the different kinds of sacrifices, offerings, on through Leviticus. And then for centuries, it continued, daily offerings, all heaped up before God as a way of worshiping Him, this impulse to give, to give over, and specifically, and maybe particularly, lifeblood, because our lives are a gift to us from Him, our Creator. But all of that mounts up, all those centuries of sacrifice and giving over to God mounts up to this key statement by Paul. His couple of verses in Romans 12 has this backlog, this rich history, this indelible practice that the Israelites lived. Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice, which is your logical, reasonable, spiritual sacrifice or worship. And so we seek, as we started out last week, we seek to encourage all of us to be servants, to be willing to be on that altar of giving ourselves to God in whatever manner for his namesake, for his honor, and for his glory. Because as Paul appeals to it, it's because of God's mercies, countless, innumerable mercies towards us. It is almost inhuman to think of not giving back over to a God who's given us our very lives, sustained us, and given us mercies or gifts that we don't even see and acknowledge during each day. And then in this context, we want to address this morning our focus as the eldership of trying to appoint people as deacons, servants in the congregation, as we call for all of us to be willing to serve and to participate in the life of the body here. But we're also specifically addressing the issue of both men and women serving in this role of deacon. Now, there's a bit of irony here going on, isn't there? I mean, yesterday, nationally, even internationally, there was a women's march all over the country. And certainly some of the values expressed behind that, we resonate with of justice, fair uh, salaries for services, work done, for protection from sexual abuse, all of those things we affirm, advocate, strive for. But that is not fully this. What this is, is being obedient to God, following his direction, resting in his created order, and trying to follow him faithfully. Certainly history has been, well, has been chock full of examples of the church, of Christendom, advocating or appropriating values and thought forms from the culture around us to very disastrous ends. So just trying to make distinctions here and focus on what we're focused on. We're looking to appoint deacons, 
servants in the church. We're calling all people in the congregation to be willing to weigh in, give over of yourself in aiding the body and the world at large around us. And so for those who are very quite concerned, maybe even fearful of this topic of considering women for deacons, it seems, again, perhaps for some, a a silly problem. What's the big deal? For some, though, they see it, I would think, as, as a concern that you're opening the door. You are setting off a trip line for other things to occur that perhaps you are really, truly uncomfortable with, as well as this. And then there's others who are frustrated that we haven't moved quicker, that we haven't opened the doors for all kinds of things that uh, advocate and push and, and place women in the role of leadership to the same level as men in all cases. So how do we respond to these concerns of either fears or frustrations, maybe even a good dose of anger in there somewhere? Well, I, I would ask us to consider the virtue of moderation. Now, moderation is not a sloppy middle ground in which you milk toast, take no position, and just sloppily listen and agree with everybody on everything. No, the virtue of moderation is a point of excellence in which you are enabled to be in dialogue and to hear others' concerns and thoughts. It's interesting to note that David Brooks, New York Times, certainly has been writing often about this need in our culture for the virtue of moderation. Again, not a sloppy middle ground of nothingness, of taking no stance, but rather the virtue of it, that you do take a stance. It's a kind of excellence, but it enables you to be able to hear and contend with multiple sides. It sets up dialogue for understanding. There's also the book by Alan Jacobs, How to Think, recently, for the same task. And then again, I just read a book review this week of, can't say his name, or even a her, I think it's a male, Aurelian Kratu, too? (laughs) I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know if that's Croatian or what. But it's Faces of Moderation is the title, subtitled The Art of Balance in an Age of Extremes. All of them draw upon Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics in which he lays out the program for appropriating, for developing in your life virtues, defining them, the practice of acquiring them. And through the centuries in Christendom, Aristotle has often been appealed to, to use him and some of his thoughts to help us appropriate the Spirit, uh, the blessings and the gifts of the Spirit. A little self-promote. I would love to teach a class on that. Aristotle's ethics and how we can use that as a means of helping be open to the development of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Anybody interested in that? Wait a minute. Carla, you didn't raise your hand. (laughs) Come on, you you know you love it when I talk Aristotle to you. (laughs) Well, that's beside the point. Okay. Well, let's get in the weeds. I'm going to look at five passages, maybe yay unto six. Look at five passages. Again, the task at hand is to search out and understand what's being said there, what's, what's revealed there, for the purpose of considering both men and women for the role of deacon. Ro- Why is it? We've never, through English language and history, we haven't translated the term 
deacon to servant. Well, it's because it has multiple usages or, or ways of translating it, as Craig pointed out in class this morning. It could be minister, it could be deacon. Well, see, we're just transliterating it into English. Well, the point being is, it's a role of service. We're calling people to service. And in the church, there was eventually a formulation or a development, a, a, a maturing into which they had a specific role called deacon. And that's what we're looking at. But let's start with Romans 16, uh, verses 1 and 2. You got that up there? Good. This is, the passages I'll be citing are from uh, the New Revised Standard. And the rationale for that particular translation is that uh, it's one of the best for and most recent with the most updated manuscript evidence that we have in translating the New Testament. 16, 1 and 2. I commend to you, Sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sincrea, so that you may welcome her as in the Lord, as fitting for the saints, and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a benefactor of many and myself as well. Well, Phoebe is called by the term a noun, deacon here. Um, if they were to describe her in this passage as someone who serves as an ongoing practice, just simply as a descriptor, that it would use diakonia or diakoneo, but here it's used as a noun, as a, if you will, a title, a describing title, but a title. And Phoebe is, you know, a co-worker with Paul and so forth. She may well have been the one and probably is the one delivering this very letter. She was more than likely a wealthy woman and a, well, the Greek term prostatis, a patron. She's one who had the money and the wherewithal and the heart's desire to help people. Being from Sincrea, that port city, uh, you would naturally have a lot of people traveling. And it would be a natural guess that she was very often active in aiding people who were traveling, places to stay or with legal concerns about proper paperwork or identification in moving from one port city to another. And she may well have been in some guest, maybe involved in a, a lawsuit, not for herself, but helping someone else and trying to help represent them and providing the funds with which to do that. Well, Paul is pretty impressed by this lady and he calls her a deacon and she's bringing the letter. She's the letter bearer, someone you have to trust that they will get there and present the letter. And this is a significant letter, is it not, Romans? And you take care of this lady because she has taken care of us. She probably has financially supported Paul in some measure, as well as others. It's very much like those mentioned in Luke chapter 8 and verse 3 with Jesus and his disciples. Luke points out that a couple of these women were providing funds for them to be able to move around in their ministry, for the group of Jesus and disciples to go from place to place. She, they were funding them. So she's called a patroness, one who financially gives support. So this lady, and then, then further down, we have a mention of Prisca and Aquila, not being called deacons or a deacon, but just note there that this couple shows up several places in the New Testament, Acts 18.6 and 1 Corinthians 16.9. Uh, 
little thing to quibble about, but the name order. It's sometimes Prisca, sometimes Priscilla, um, and her name's typically first. Well, is that because of some role significance that she carries over against Aquila? Well, maybe not. It's, uh, it's Romans, excuse me, it's 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, it's reverse where Aquila's name is first. It might more, might more likely be simply a linguistic thing. Prisca, ending with that ah sound, to Aquila. It just moves smoothly, right? So we probably can't draw a whole lot about that role playing or that, uh, excuse me, role placement of, of the names. But we turn then to uh, Philippians chapter 1 and the first verse, a couple of verses, well, first verse, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, and the term servants here is not diakonon, it's actually doulos, which is slaves. Paul and Timothy calling themselves, referring to themselves as slaves. Greeting to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. So by this point in time, it seems that there's a fairly clarified development of congregations having those whom they called and referred to as overseers or bishops, and those who were called servants or simply helpers, attendants, co-workers in the role of the ministry in the church there. Now, I cite this passage as an example of structure of letter writing. So when we turn to uh, Philemon, this little letter, uh, the first couple of verses again, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So move of his self-description of um, slave to now a prisoner, which he was in this case, uh, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Appia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Now, some have wondered, well, this structure, compared to the letter writing and Paul typically follows the standard letter-writing form of the day. Uh, is this mentioning himself and Timothy and then moving to Philemon and Apphia? Is that leading to similar structure to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, in which he's naming a bishop, elder, and a deacon? Well, it's a little bit difficult to know that for sure because uh, the church in our house or in your house is singular. It doesn't say plural for both them as a couple. So we don't know if Appia is a wife to Philemon. And then Archippus, was that the son of Appia? I don't know. So again, this is all a bit of guesswork, right? A little bit of intrigue, trying to tease out what we can know. But there is the possibility, and it's just mounting up inductive information, that is, that you compile information to see if it lends its weight towards a conclusion by probability, not certainty. But you have Philippians 1 and that structure, mentioning bishops and deacons. And then here in Philemon, you have names mentioned that seem to be kind of in the structure and order similar to Philippians 1. That's all that's being said, and that's all we can probably draw from in that case. Well, let's turn to then just briefly, or just mention, uh, as was discussed this morning in, in class, of Acts chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 7. We had the appointment of the seven. They are called not specifically deacons, but they're called to a specific task. It looks deacon-like, 
and that's taking care of the tables for the widows, serving them, feeding them. Notice the wisdom there, if nothing else, the wisdom of how it's gone about to take care of a conflict in the church. You have a, a rub, a, a, well, a pretty serious oversight. You have the widows in the congregation, some are of Jewish background, some are also Jews, but of a Hellenistic background. You have a cultural conflict. The Hebraic Jews are not being taken care of properly. So the apostles indicate this division of labor and say, it's, it's, just not, it's just not right for us to back off from prayer and ministry of the word to wait on tables. Now, it's not a denigration of that task. It's just that they have been called to this other significant task, and it would be wrong to leave it at hand. So, church, pick out some folks to, to take care of this. Well, notice the wisdom of the congregation. The, pe- the people they selected were those of all Hellenistic names so that they would be sensitive to and certainly taking care of both their own cultural group but also the Hebraic Jews. And so there's that nice middle ground taken to try to minister to them. Now, it's, it's often thought that these were the first deacons. And you could say that by way of the generic notion of, yeah, they were serving. So yeah, deacons. But as being the more structured, formalized uh, position of deacon that develops within the New Testament, probably not. Because you have in Acts 7, the very next chapter, and then chapter 8, uh, with um, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch and so forth. Stephen, and, and they look like evangelists, right? They don't seem to last long here. They are out and scattered speaking the word. So it's questionable, at least, whether these folks were really appointed to the role that we understand as, as being deacons. But for an occasion, for a specific task, for a specific moment, wise, structured decision-making was taking place, and it's a good model for us, certainly, to follow. But okay, let's get to the real rub. Let's turn to 1 Timothy 3, in chapter 8 through, or verses 8 through 13, where it addresses the qualifications of a deacon specifically. Now, virtue lists, or that is, lists of qualifications, were common in the day. Let's see if I can find my reference here. Yeah, this is from uh, Musonius Rufus. He was a wealthy aristocrat into the second century, uh, but is also a Stoic philosopher. Musonius. What would be his name shortened? Moose? So we got this from Moose. And he's, he's advocating um, qualifications or virtue lists that were really, again, quite widespread for a philosopher. He says, his command and his law is that man be just and honest, beneficent, temperate, high-minded, superior to pain, superior to pleasure, free of all envy and malice. To put it briefly, the law of Zeus bids man be good. (laughs) Just be good. And being good is the same thing as being a philosopher. That's why I did my PhD in philosophy. But then he also turns to women in another passage. He says, above all, women must be chaste and self-controlled. She must, I mean, be pure in respect to unlawful love, uh, exercise restraint and other pleasures, be not slave to desire, not be contentious, 
not lavish in expense nor extravagant in dress. And he goes on with other virtues. Then he shifts over to being just and then being courageous. And all of this is for women to be qualified to be a philosopher, specifically a Stoic philosopher. So that is just simply to say as a background, when we look at the list that Paul employs in several places and here as well for qualifications for elders, but then also for deacons, there was a common soup out there, if you will, of lists of qualifications for things. In this case with uh, Musonius, it would be uh, for being a philosopher. Paul gives his list here for the qualifications for being bishops, elders. And then he turns to deacons. And so let's look at this passage. Let me find this. Okay. Deacons, likewise, must be serious, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not greedy for money. They must hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them first be tested. Then, if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. Women, likewise, must be serious and slanderers, but temperate, faithful in all things, and let deacons be married only once. And let them manage their children and their households well. For those who serve as well as deacons, as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and greet a great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The question here in this passage, if you back up to verse 1 in chapter 3, is you have a block. And the issue is, are there two sections or are there three sections? The first section, the describing of the qualifications for bishops, verses 1 through 7, is then, if you will, mirrored in the next section. And it's tipped off to us by verse 8 saying, likewise. So as it is with bishops and the qualifications they must manifest to be called one, likewise, and in the same manner, similar manner, it should be thus with deacons. But then, of course, we want to say, well, what about that shift in verse 11? Is this a continuation of simply describing women who are wives of deacons? But because of the structure of the whole passage, we would want to know, well, why weren't there descriptions of qualifications of women who are the wives of bishops? See, it doesn't parallel then. But the rest of the passage parallels. But in verse 11, we have another juncture like we had in verse 8. And it says, women likewise must be serious, not slanderers, but temperate, faithful in all things, and on down the road. It seems like it's a three-part structure. Now, that line in verse 11, linguistically in the Greek, could go either way. It could either be, this is a description or referring to wives of male deacons, or it's referring to women who are deacons. And it's because of that term, likewise. So what we actually have is a structure of part A, describing the bishops, right? And then a likewise structure after that, part B and C. Both of them had the same structure as part A. If you're going to be a deacon, 
excuse me, you can be a bishop, you have to have these qualifications. If you're going to be a deacon, men, you have to have these qualifications. If you're going to be a deacon, women, you have to have these qualifications. So structurally, the passage pretty strongly points to that verse 11 referring to women who also are going to be serving as deacons. And then we can kind of back up and take a deep breath and think, well, what are we really talking about? And the role of deacon as a servant, as an attendant, as doing something, we're not calling upon the women to rule the roost, to override the congregation, to uh, dominate the rest of the body. No, it, it's like all of us being called to be in service to the rest of the family. So in some ways, we, this is simply an attempt to restore what was always there, but maybe seeing it a little bit more clearly, that there were women who served as deacons. Now we have this last piece, and this is what you do to help in the process of interpretation. If you can't fully figure out from the passages in the New Testament, you look at background materials in the culture at large, like looking at uh, Masonius' um, description of virtues, and there's plenty of others too, to see it as kind of a typical standard assertion. And you don't get too hung up on the details of the virtues because they just kind of almost <laughs> stream of consciousness spew those out, as he says, just simply be good, right? As your culture describes that. So what you do, then also can do is see how does this play out in the church life into history, into the second century? Well, we have a letter from Pliny the Younger to, um, do I have that? Or did I not put it in there? Is it up there? Yes, um, to Pliny the Younger, to Trajan, the Emperor Trajan. He, he was trying to figure out what this weird group was, these Christians. And so he decides, well, I can't really tell fully what they're up to. So I just grabbed a couple of servant girls, whom they called deaconesses, and I tortured them. <laughs> so maybe you don't want to be a deacon, you know. Um, so he tortures them to get further information. His conclusion, speaking to Trajan, whom he's writing to get directions. What should I do with this weird group? And he says, well, they're just, just a bunch of depraved people full of excessive superstitions. But the point being is he uses this term deaconesses. And I, again, would advocate us not using that term. It doesn't occur in among Christians, the female version of that, which is not in the Greek language, but it's a manufactured ending doesn't occur until 325 A.D. Because the term always was open to, it's neutral, it could be male or female, it could be either way. Besides, when you try to say it in English, plural, deaconesses, just, where do you stop with the Z's, you know? It's clumsy. So just deacons is the appropriate term. So you look at the church history, or you look at history itself, it is an indication that early on, 112, 113 maybe when this letter was written, that it was practiced by the church. That it was standard practice by the church to have women, women serving in the role of deacons. He would have picked up on this, um, and it's a noun again, uh, he would have picked up on this from what they themselves said. 
It wasn't his assertion. It was just simply reporting what he was finding out. So you look at the passages we covered this morning. And the strongest ones or the most compelling would be certainly Romans 16, 1 and 2 with Phoebe. And then the, the passage structure in 1 Timothy 3 and the qualifications for deacons. Mirroring in structure the design or the layout for bishops. But it does indeed seem, because of that term repeated, linguistically, structurally says men as deacons, women as deacons. That seems how it plays out. And then it's confirmed, it seems for us, to some measure by this letter saying in the early church this was practiced. Now, you still may be uncomfortable with this, and uh, it bothers you, and I sympathize. But I would, for all of us, seek to be moderate, not moderate as not taking a stand again, but moderate as a virtue of being open and willing to listen to other brothers and sisters. Because the penultimate of all of this is for we to be faithful to Christ, joined together at the hip because we're joined in him, and to be in service to the world around us proclaiming his name and giving him honor. Might we be uncomfortable some regards with this? May some others be uncomfortable because they don't feel like it's going far enough? I know that. But right now, in what we're trying to accomplish, be willing to serve, be willing to affirm others who would be designated, counted as deacons to serve among us, and give God honor and glory with it ask you to pray about it, I'd be thinking about names and so forth that you'd like to see put forward, be certainly involved and steeped in prayer, and ask also how you can serve. Say something like Isaiah, when he encountered God in the temple, and finally say, here I am, Lord, send me, send me to serve. May it be so among us always open to obeying him. This morning, we would ask you to ask that question, say that to yourself, Lord, here am I. Say that not to us, but to Christ himself, and to hear his call to put him on in baptism, to be his child, and let the adventure begin. And for those of us who've been in the faith for a good long while, maybe a good long while in this very congregation, Ask again, state again, scary as it can be, Lord, send me into whatever role you would ask me to do. It is an adventure, but it's compelling and it is life-giving. Let your needs be known. Let prayer requests be known. Some of the elders will be up and around the sides. Address them and let your heartfelt desire of wanting to be sent, wanting to be a servant, be known to us as we stand and sing.